0: The day of Pentecost uh, requires 50 days to be accomplished. And we know those scriptures. I'm sure they will be expounded to you very well uh, by your pastor on the Holy Day. But just to refresh your memory, we count from the Sabbath, from the day after the Sabbath, with the beginning of the wave sheaf offering, and we count forward, we count 50 days, of course, and it doesn't end up on Monday. It does indeed end up on Sunday. And so from, from that point forward, 50 days. And I just want to reference, without actually turning to a lot of scriptures before I really get started here, how significant it is that the Lord Jesus Christ, after he was indeed accepted as our wave sheaf offering, As portrayed there in John chapter 20, where that morning while it was still dark, he indicated that he had not yet ascended. And then later on, of course, it was evident that he had ascended and he had been accepted as our wave sheaf offering on behalf of all of us. Very, very important. And that significance is is certainly not, not missed by us. Because of that, and the indwelling of his spirit, the fact that he was here for 40 days to set up the giving of his spirit, we can indeed be first fruits. But I find it quite remarkable that there has been very little preaching about the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ not only was here 40 days teaching the disciples and his followers, John said with a little bit of hyperbole that he supposed that if all that the Lord said and did, all that the Lord had instructed them and taught them in that interim period of time, if it were written down, he supposed that the world itself would not be able to contain all the books necessary. Yeah. Well, evidently, they still didn't get it, of course, entirely, and they didn't until the day of Pentecost and the receiving of his spirit. But what I want to draw your attention to is that he spent 40 days here Wherein he was Lord and Master, the resurrected Lord who had been to heaven and had been accepted. And you remember the prayer that he prayed in the 17th chapter of John Father, restore to me now the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. And that prayer, of course, was granted. And he is indeed. The Lord Almighty, the Lord Jesus Christ, our advocate at the throne of God. And he is the, the Lord, the curio, the owner. He's in charge. He is the boss. And all power in heaven and earth is vested in him. And the fullness of the Godhead resides in him in every respect. We know those scriptures, and I'm highlighting them for you to illustrate the fact that he is absolute sovereign. The church is his. He purchased it with his body and his blood. And he did not give his Holy Spirit in that interim period of time. He could have given it at any moment if it so pleased him because he's Lord and master and his will is irresistible and immutable. And yet he did not. When they desperately needed that spirit, yes, he waited the full 40 days and then instructed them to wait 10 more days. And he did that for effect. Like I said, he could have given his Holy Spirit, which was critical to the the church. There is no church without the Spirit. And yet, he made them wait. It illustrates something. It illustrates the ongoing validity and need for keeping God's holy days. He deliberately waited to validate, contrary to what's taught in traditional Christianity, that the holy days are done away, that they're archaic and no longer necessary, the Lord Jesus Christ illustrated in that direct in direction to them that the holy days are still in effect. He made them wait for the holy day, the feast of first fruits, to receive the indwelling of a spirit, to indeed become first fruits. You can't ignore the, the significance of that. You can't overstate the importance of it. It validates the ongoing keeping of his holy days. And, of course, the way it sets up in the holy days, you have to compute from a holy day to arrive at the Feast of Weeks, of course. And so just logically connecting the dots, (laughs) we can see that the holy days are still incumbent upon us and that they still have meaning for us and that we still need to keep them, of course. In Exodus chapter 34 and verse 22, you don't need to turn there, but that is the first and earliest complete title of what the day is all about. It is called the Feast of Weeks of the First Fruits Harvest. The Feast of Weeks of the First Fruits Harvest. That is actually the technical name. The Feast of Weeks or First Fruits Harvest, either one is correct. Pentecost is actually somewhat of a misnomer in that it is an adjective word. It is a descriptive word that we have, well, we use it now as a noun, as the name of of the holy day, but it just simply means the counting of the 50 or the 50th day, as it were. And the Lord Jesus Christ established that the Bible and what has been given to us by God and all that had previously been written is still valid and that God's word is truth. Not the traditions of man, not, not the accumulated wisdom of mankind, which is faulted without God to begin with, but God's word. And in John chapter 17, verse 17, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ said, thy word is truth. And he was indeed referencing the scripture. So instead of being caught up in the traditions of men and thereby being seduced by those traditions, they're powerful. Traditions are powerful. And they can have a seductive effect upon people to be engaged in things that are contrary to Scripture. Instead of being caught up in them, we are following God's word. We are following the truth. Pentecost celebrates the pouring out of God's Holy Spirit his first fruit children. We, brethren, are, well, it's accurate to actually call us the jewels in the crown. We are the jewels in the crown of humanity. Everyone from Adam right up to the meeting of the Lord Jesus Christ in the air, all that God has done from past eternity is in preparation of that event because that sets everything else up. And there is a special significance, a special place of honor for those of us in that first fruits resurrection. That first resurrection has, well, it has power on out into eternity. We will be the nobility in the family of God because of it. We're going to be priests and kings ruling here on this earth for a thousand years with the Lord Jesus Christ, and then on out into eternity. We can only begin to speculate. And some scriptures give us some educated speculation, of course. But Father has something in store for us so magnificent, so beyond our ability to absorb that perhaps that's the reason he doesn't tell us more at this time. Maybe we're just simply not equipped with this gray matter up here, even with the acquisition of God's spirit, to comprehend the magnificence of whatever it is he has in store for us. Because, brethren, once this has served its purpose, it's going to be folded up. All of creation, heaven and earth, and everything in it, other than the eternal Lord God himself, of course. But heaven and earth, and all the stuff in heaven and earth, is going to be folded up like a scroll. Jesus Christ is going to fold it up, and it's going to be a lasso. Did I say it right, George? It's going to be changed. That means it's going to become something else. It's going to be totally, completely changed into something else that we can't comprehend on this side of the event. We're all going to be changed into spirit beings. Completely changed into spirit beings. And it is because that down payment, that earnest is present with us now. You know, on the day of Pentecost... They were all full of God's Holy Spirit. They were, the scripture tells us, pleruo. Did I say it right, George? George is fluent, not only in English, but in Greek. He has helped me very, very much and corrected me many times when I didn't pronounce it correctly. The Greek language is very, very important. It isn't by accident that God wrote and preserved the New Testament, and the Greek language. It's because it is a very intellectually powerful language. It is, a, it is a language with great ability to communicate not only facts and figures, but emotion as well. It is a rich, expressive language. It wasn't by mistake or accident that it was preserved that way. And those Greek words have great depth of meaning that we can, well, we can, we can study to show ourselves approved unto God. I'm grateful for the Greek language, George. And because of that, we can understand words like "Alasu." That means to change completely. Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to fold it all up, roll it up like a scroll, and it will be changed. Yes. This universe, heaven and earth, those stars out there, betelgeuse Alpha Centauri, everything that's out there, it all has connectivity To us in this moment that we can't comprehend. But all things are working to the good. Everything. Extrapolate that to everything. On the subatomic level and everything. For the purpose that God has put into motion. The birthing of his family. And that starts with his first fruits. Yes. We are privileged to have been called to be members of that first fruit a singular and distinct honor, a great privilege, for we will indeed rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. On out into eternity, he's got something special for us because we have to overcome now. We have to fight against and overcome now. To he that overcome with will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I am set down with my Father in his throne. Overcoming the God of this world is something that we have to do. Those in that great second resurrection, guess what? He's going to be locked up. He's going to be out of the picture. That's going to be significantly easier for them. Yes. Especially in light of the fact that we will have inherit, inherited our inheritance at that point. We will have met the Lord Jesus Christ in the air and along with our Lord this Planet will be changed. And, you know, we're not going to heaven. Heaven's coming here in the person of Jesus Christ and his saints as we turn this in to heaven on earth for a thousand years. Yes. And the knowledge of the eternal will cover the earth like the seas presently cover the earth. Our calling is indeed special. How privileged we are. Our words of praise for our God are just simply insufficient for a majesty so great, and what he has in store for us, and the rewards waiting for us. Now, how does it all start? Well, it starts with that earnest. But before we got that, something else had to happen, which is illustrated also on the day of Pentecost. Turn with me in your Bibles over to the book of Acts. Do I have water up here? I do. Thank you. In the book of Acts in chapter 1. Somebody told me that I need to get some good whiskey and gargle with it and that would clear all this up. I've been looking for a doctor like that for a long time. in Acts chapter 1 the Lord Jesus Christ references the promise the promise of the Holy Spirit but the promise reflects back to the original promise so I've preached to you before from Ephesians chapter 1 from Galatians chapter 4 from 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 and from Titus chapter 1 how that before time began God God made a promise. God spoke aloud. God verbalized his intention, his hope, his... Is I saying, am I saying that right, George? Hope. Okay, yes. I did say it almost right. Yeah. And it means confident expectation. God wasn't just hoping he could do what he wanted to do. He, he was confident and had an expectation that it would indeed succeed, of course. He's not a God of doubt. He knows what he's doing. And he was confident. He had a confident expectation in regards to eternal life for us. That plan was set into motion with the concept of Christ crucified before the foundation of the world. Before time began, God already knew what he needed to do to facilitate the plan and bring it to fruition, of course. And when you read about the promise in the New Testament, it is inclusive of Not only of the giving of God's Holy Spirit and the receiving of God's Holy Spirit, but it takes us back to that event when God Epangelo, when God promised, when God spoke aloud and verbalized the promise. That is indeed the word. And here in Acts chapter 1, uh, let me just begin. The former treatise which I've made, O Theopolis, O lover of God, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And it's just a little sidebar here, note, and how significant is it? He spoke to them, as he always did, about the kingdom of God. When Christ began his ministry, what are we told? He came preaching about the kingdom of God. That's what it's about, from cover to cover, the establishing of that kingdom so that his family can be born into that kingdom, of course. Verse 4, And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem... But wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, you have heard of me. And no doubt he had talked to them at some length about that. That's probably a, a reference to what John was saying. Then verse 5. For John truly baptized with water. John truly immersed you. John truly baptizo. John truly pushed, pushed you down into the water, submerged you into the water. But you shall be submerged, you shall be baptized into, you shall be baptizo into the Holy Spirit, not many days hence. And when they were therefore come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And I wanted to include that because it illustrates that he was prophesying to them that they would indeed receive the Holy Spirit, but clearly they still did not get it, they had not received it, and they're still woefully ignorant. They're still saying things based upon their paradigm about ancient Israel, of course. They wanted the kingdom restored. They wanted it now. They just simply did not get it. And they did not till the day of Pentecost. But Pentecost changed everything, of course. Let me continue. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power, And the word for power here is exosia, and it means authority. That's what the Father has reserved unto himself. And the Lord indicated, at least at that time, at that specific time, that he himself did not seem to know when that would be, of course. It is the most closely guarded secret of all. And have we ever pondered that? Have you ever pondered why it's such a closely guarded secret about when it will be? Could it be because there is one who goes to heaven to accuse us, who would love to know some details about the Lord's ultimate plans and timing? I think we can make that a pretty good, safe assumption, yes. And so it's a closely guarded secret. But at some point, the Father is going to say, Go, son, it is time. Go. Go quickly and save them. Yes. And redeem them unto yourself." But notice what he says here. The Father has put this in his own authority, his own power, his own exosia. But, get this, you shall receive power, you shall receive dunamis. That is the indwelling of the Spirit, the life-giving Spirit, the the life-engendering Holy Spirit. We have that now. Eternity has been conceived. And we are now... Pregnant in the church. The church is pregnant with us. And the analogy of church is perfect. Just as a man and a woman come together and engender a new life, God's Holy Spirit and the spirit of man in us are conjoined together in a way that engenders new life. It's called a new creature, a new creation in Christ. It's an ongoing creation. You shall receive dynamis, you shall receive power. After the Holy Spirit is come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And then, of course, we know that he was taken up. They saw him depart up into heaven. They witnessed it. They saw that happen. But now I want to take you to what I inferred before I read that first chapter for you. Here in Acts chapter 2. Because this is the beginning of how we become first fruits. And I'm extrapolating it in a a broad context, of course. But something along this line must happen for each and every one of us. There has to be a a moment of of awakening. There has to be a moment of understanding. There has to be a moment of contrition. There has to be a moment when God the Father acts upon us. In a miraculous way. From my perspective, there is no miracle greater than that of conversion. There is no miracle greater than, than the fact that Almighty Sovereign Father in heaven actually at some point must focus on you as he has on me and actually occupy his infinite mind to think about you and, and, to, and to think to himself, well... This meathead has run into the wall enough now, and the clay is now soft and pliable. <laughs> this one's ready. Life has beat him up in such a way or, or beat her up in such a way that she's now ready. The, the clay is now pliable, so come to the potter. Yes. That's the way it happens. John six forty four and John six 65. I'm going to turn there directly, but first, here in Acts chapter 2, we have the example of what happened on the day of Pentecost. The Apostle Peter stands up, and now he's full of God's Holy Spirit. It has profoundly changed him. He's pleuro of the Spirit. He's full of the Spirit. You and I have an earnest of the Spirit. We can get more of it. We can acquire more of it by a closer walk with Jesus Christ, by virtue of our obedience to him, Acts 5.32. You want more of his Spirit, then you must be obedient to him. Yes. But on that day... Their own righteousness notwithstanding, or lack of it, and there was a big lack, actually. God performed a fabulous miracle, and they were full of God's Holy Spirit. The word indicates fullness in in totality. I've illustrated that to you before by supposing that you had a glass and you poured water in it, until all the volume inside the glass was full and the water starts to overflow. That's what that word means. And that's the amount of Holy Spirit that they had. They didn't have an earnest like you and me. This is unique language. They were full of God's Holy Spirit, completely full to the exclusion of all else. And they spent the rest of their lives that way. That doesn't mean they couldn't still make mistakes. But they were now full of God's Holy Spirit in ways that I wish I could be, and that we all would love to be. Peter was so full of God's Holy Spirit that even his shadow would heal people. Peter and Paul and James and the other were so full of God's Holy Spirit that they had the autonomy to, as it pleased them, heal people. They didn't even have to pray first. I've cited to you before, there's a prime example. Remember when Peter encountered the lame man at the temple, and, and the man was begging, and, and Peter said, I don't have any gold to give you, but I'll give you what I've got. Autonomy. I'll give you what I've got. In the name of Jesus Christ, be healed. Boom, and an incredible miracle happened. Yes, and we see numerous examples of that kind of fullness of the Spirit. Yes, and the church was started in a very powerful, miraculous way. And those miracles, those ongoing miracles that that generation had caused the church to grow exponentially. 3,000 that day. Amazing. 3,000. I've had the good pleasure of baptizing quite a few people over the last 30 years. You know, I remember once at Hilton Head baptizing 28 people in the ocean. Wow, thats that was Actually, it was quite a chore. <laughs> Imagine 3,000 people. Yes. And they were, they were moved because God's spirit had been poured out. Not only was it now indwelling Peter and the others, it was now working on the crowd. It was working on and in and around them in ways that had never before happened in human history, except on very specific cases with specific individuals. And now it's poured out. God poured it out in some way. And now it's affecting the crowd. And Peter's words are getting through to them. Peter's words are now being understood with the clarity that God's Holy Spirit was providing for them. And now they're getting it. And he said, you've crucified the Lord. And they said, oh my God, what are we going to (laughs) do? And he said, repent. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, be baptized for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Yes. At some point, following this scenario here, contrition enters in. They were cut in their hearts, we're told. They realized that they had egregiously offended God. We have sinned. Did you have an experience like that? It may not have been as dramatic as this one. But I remember that there was a moment in time for me when I realized how guilty I was of transgressing God's law. And I've got to do something about it. And God was causing me, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't get any rest. Yeah. Maybe your experience was somewhat different. But turn with me over to John chapter 6. Can you remember moments in your conversion when lights came on for you, different lights perhaps that came on about certain doctrines and so forth, maybe the moment that you really began to understand about the family of God or or about the Sabbath or any number of truths of God's word? I remember, I remember, I, I don't know how many times I might have heard it preached, but I remember the moment that that epiphany happened for me, and I realized that, that if anyone does indeed have the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit, this must happen first, and there is no other way. God the Father starts it. Salvation doesn't start in your mind. It starts in the Father's mind. It is the Father's prerogative. It is the Father engendering. It is the Father recreating. And it starts in Almighty Sovereign God the Father's mind. Here in John chapter 6 at verse 44, the Lord Jesus Christ said, No man can come to me except, or unless, as it were, the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And the word draw is so significant. In the Greek, it is helko or helkuo. It is a proactive verb. And it literally means to draw or drag or pull. The Father himself had to exert some kind of supernatural power upon us to pull us, draw us, drag us to the Lord Jesus Christ. It starts with the Father. And then in John chapter 6 and verse 65, the Lord Jesus Christ reiterated that. And for effect, he really nailed it with these words. Verse 65. He said, therefore, I said unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. The word given here is didomi. It literally means to grant, to show, to give, to deliver, to bestow. In other words, God the Father must pull you. He must get it started. He must draw you to him. And then he must give you to the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't happen any other way. This is very specific theological foundation Christianity right here. God the Father starts the process. He draws us. He calls us, and he must give us to Jesus Christ. And coupling that with something that the Lord Jesus Christ told us is so comforting. Remember what the Lord said? He referenced the fact that the Father had given us to him, and he's And he said, the Father has told me to not lose you. Yes, don't lose them. Yes, that's powerful. And that has happened for us, brethren. Some of us are proceeding along that course of, well, that course of salvation, that course of getting rewired faster than others. We don't all progress at the same rate sometime, for reasons that, that, you know, the angels must be astounded. They are watchers. They look at us, and we have scripture that makes it clear they report back to headquarters. Can you imagine at some point that angels might have a conversation like, hey, did you see what they did? And that that, that one Christian down there, he's been a Christian for years, but look what he's walking backwards, you know. Anybody here ever walk backwards? Come on, show to me them hands. Yeah. Thank you. Let's have honesty. Yeah. How stupid is that? You know. <laughs> but then again, we are meatheads. Archie Bunker was right. Yeah. But is the acquisition of God's Holy Spirit that can change us and make us Einsteins? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Turn with me in your Bibles over to 2nd Corinthians I want to show you something in 2nd Corinthians and I've got more markers in my Bible than I'll have time to get to here in 2nd Corinthians chapter 1 you know years ago in the church some of us have a a long history in the church with a background in an organization, a wonderful organization that taught us and educated us with great excellence. They They were very good. Some of the best speakers in the world, some of the best scholars of God's word in the world taught us many wonderful things. And God was able to turn on lights for us through that preaching and that teaching. Amen? Yes. But... The concept of grace was did it get the preaching that it needed? No. No, it did not. Did not. Matthew five seventeen was preached with power and vigor, as it should be. Think not that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. It came not to destroy, but to fulfill. Yes. But the concept of grace was, well, it just it took a back seat in some respects. But brethren, it really is about God's grace. We can't earn our salvation. Baptism doesn't get it for you. Nothing gets it for you that you can do. You know, it is about God's grace. Now, we've been given a program to follow. There are things that, that we're obliged to do. You know, but it's not doing those things that save us. It is the largesse of God. It is, it is His choice, His will. It is entirely... A God thing. We cannot save ourselves. It is grace. And I've illustrated that before time began, God understood the need for being gracious towards us because they're going to screw it up. I can make them look like me. I can give them upright bipedal motion, opposing fingers and thumbs and eyes and ears with stereoscopic capability. I can make them little clay gods as it were with a with a brain that can contain my spirit to give them intellect I can make them limited like that in that respect but I can't give them my character they won't have my morality they won't have my infinite mind they won't be pure love and light like I am they'll be clay and they'll be subject to weaknesses and they'll get tired and and they'll make mistakes and they'll be prone towards those mistakes because they'll just be clay and so of a necessity, I'll have to put a program into motion whereby I can, I can save them, to facilitate the program that I want to put into motion, whereby I'm going to reproduce after my own kind. And in order to do that, I know, I'll go down there and become one of them. Yes, and show them the way, and show them how to do it. And while I'm there, of course, I'll, I'll pay for their mistakes. Yes, that's what I'll do. Ah, uh, yes, I'll just forgive them. Yes, I'll be gracious to them. I'll put a program into effect whereby I can convert them. I can give them things to do and teach them and show them the way. The way, the truth, and the life. And that's what God's doing. He hasn't deviated that. From past eternity, he's moving heaven and earth and all the beings in heaven and earth towards a conclusion. We're moving towards that conclusion. I happen to think we're getting pretty close to it, personally. But the fact is, we've been given a seal here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 at verse 22. It's referencing God, of course, who has also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Now, I want to comment on these words and expound what they mean in Greek because they are so significant. And they validate everything that I just said. The word sealed is seragidzo And it means it's a stamp or a signet or a mark that validates and authenticates a contract or a transaction. Uh, when you go to a uh, justice of the peace and they put that stamp on there, That's a (laughs) serogidso. And it's a a mark. The word also means a mark that identifies or makes something legal. That's what that word means. That's the way it's used in the Greek language. We have been sealed. A a serogidso has happened. Our names have been written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. Guess what? Your sometimes sins or even your frequent sins, I'm sure that God doesn't have an angel stationed at the Lamb's Book of Life erasing your name every day and then at night when you pray for forgiveness writing it back down. The plan of salvation is tough, it's strong, it's not weak. There's nothing weak about God's Holy Spirit or his connection to us. In fact, there's nothing stronger. God doesn't give up on us, he doesn't quit. We have the capability of quitting but Christ said I will never leave you. The Father is not a quitter. Yes. We've been sealed and we have been given the earnest of the spirit and the word earnest is ar and it literally means a down payment or security deposit. That is to say a portion paid on account in lieu of later full payment. Is that amazing? That's incredible. Yes what we have received has been sealed it's a done deal that only we can break yes by our own choices turn with me in your bibles brethren over to 1st thessalonians 1st thessalonians 1st thessalonians, First thessalonians. Chapter 5, I want to draw your attention to just one verse of Scripture. What does it say? Quench not the Spirit. Can God's Holy Spirit be quenched by us? Well, that that verse makes no sense if if it cannot be. Those who insist that salvation cannot be undone, cannot be lost by us, you now, once saved, always saved. Somebody tell me, is that scriptural? Is that biblical? Or is that a man-made concept that twists the concept of grace completely out of shape? It is indeed the latter, isn't it? Yes. We can indeed quench the spirit. Allow me to tell you what this word quench literally means. It is, and this is, this is a tough one, zbenoume in the Greek. And it literally means to extinguish as in one completely putting out a fire. To completely extinguish. Yes. So we can indeed put out the fire. You know. The word could even be used metaphorically in such a way that we could turn these lights out and be in the dark. We can extinguish the light. God will not force us to walk in the light. He won't reach down from heaven and hold his Holy Spirit in us we have autonomy yes but he neither will he reach down and take it away from us yes only we can do that turn with me in your bibles if you would now over to second timothy This is the most carefully conceived plan that has ever existed, of course. It came from the infinite, omni-mind of God. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in their, well, in their existence before time began, before the, before the, before the, perhaps even before the relationship that we now understand as Father and Son. When Elohim, Elohim, represents the uniplural one God that they indeed are. And at some point this has happened for us. Verse seven of Second Timothy. Well let me back up because it's important to reference how that happened. Paul makes reference to the fact that with the laying on of hands, Timothy did indeed receive God's Holy Spirit. Verse 6, wherefore I put thee in remembrance, Timothy, that thou steer up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. Yes, indeed. And the word steer here, to steer up, it is an Oh, I know I messed that one up, but it literally means to rouse to action and or to rekindle a fire to full flame, or to make one fully awake even when used metaphorically. In other words, to wake up, to start the fire, to rouse up and rekindle the flame, to keep it going, as it were. It's within our power to quench it or stir it up. Yes. Verse 7, For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power. The word here, again, is dunamis. It is the life-giving, life-engendering power that renews us daily as new creatures in Christ and of love, agape love, godly love. We've been given the capacity and the ability to have an expanded heart an expanded emotions, expanded love that we could not have before. We've been touched in such a way now that phileo love, brotherly love, which is foundational to us as human beings, can become agape love. yes. And we've been given a spirit of a sound mind. Uh, I, I guess I enjoy this more than I should, perhaps, but you know, we were all nuts. It's a matter of degrees. The only sane person by this book's definition of sanity was the Lord Jesus Christ. The rest of us have been molested intellectually, emotionally, and sometimes even physically by the God of this world. And no one has escaped that except Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen. Yeah. And I've, I've referenced how the first time that I ever preached this, this concept Charles Gross was in the audience and he laughed out loud. Yes. Because he understood that I wasn't saying it to insult people. He he understood the profound truth in that moment. Yes. We were all affected by this world in which we live. But with the acquisition of God's Holy Spirit, becoming the first fruits with the acquisition of God's Holy Spirit, we have a fix. We have a cure. We now have... The mind of Christ. And if we'll make room for it, we can get more of it. Yes. And that's sanity. And I submit to you that before you had that, you were nuts by this book's definition. Yes. Some people are so, so nuts, you've got to lock them up so they don't hurt themselves or somebody else. The rest of us managed to stumble along reasonably well, I suppose. But by this book's definition, the mind of Christ is sanity and nothing else is. Yes. So now we're, we're moving towards sanity. I'm saner now than I was a long time ago. I'm saner now than I was when I first came up from the waters of baptism. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that I'm perfect. No, you all know better. But we're moving along, are we not? Will you acknowledge with me today, will you raise your hand with me today and acknowledge that you are aware, deeply and profoundly aware that God your Father has called you, you have received his Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ is renewing you and converting you, and you are on your way to his kingdom. If you believe that, yes, indeed, the power of Pentecost is the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit that... Seals the deal and makes it possible for us, for all of us. We've been given all that we need. We, we have a spirit, not of fear, but one actually of courage because it is the spirit of Christ and of power, dynamic power, life-giving power, and of love, agape love, and of a sound mind. And you know some translations actually have it as a sane mind, sanity. Yes, Indeed. That's what we've been given. That's what we have now. Whether we use it or not, whether, whether we utilize it or not, is up to us. But you know, we live in a world that is contrary to us, do we not? We live in a world that is contrary to the teachings of this book. We live in a world that is contrary to what we're trying to accomplish. Contrary to our movement to and with the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in a world that has been formed by the God of this world. Turn with me and your Bibles back over to 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And this again references the fact and its validation for what I said before about the fact that God our Father must call us. He must do something. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let me begin in verse 2. We have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. We have renounced the hidden things of a Christianity, a traditional Christian paradigm that we were caught up in to one degree or another that is in fact dishonest. Dishonest. Not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Look at this in verse 3. But if our gospel be hid, and certainly it is, it is hid to them that are lost. Now the word lost is uh, it's King James translation, but it doesn't mean lost to the lake of fire. The final judgment, of course. It means lost to what's being referenced here. It means being lost to the light that is referenced to Currently, as we once were as well. That's the context, context of it. That's the exegesis that you must understand here. Verse 4. In whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. yes. The, the darkness that exists here in this unseen kingdom of darkness. It's very thick darkness, you know. Satan, the devil, originally as Hallel, the bringer of light, the conduit of light, was to be instrumental in some way in bringing light to man, bringing truth to man, to facilitate salvation. Hebrews 1.14, they were all created for that purpose. But instead, he has... Well, he corrupted himself, and now he does the opposite. Instead of bringing light, instead of bringing clarity, he brings confusion. He brings darkness. And that confusion and that darkness is so great and so strong, so intense, that only God the Father can turn on a light bright enough to shine through it. That's what's being referenced here. The God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ who is the image of God, should shine unto them. But look at this verse 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God, who said, let there be light, said, let there be light in Nathaniel's mind. Let there be light in David's mind. Let there be light in Wayne's mind. Let there be light in Sandy's mind. To shine the image of Jesus Christ to us in a a way that we can comprehend and truly understand the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But for the time being, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. And that brings me to to the next point I want to make. We are struggling, are we not? Anybody here so converted that you don't struggle anymore? I won't raise my hands. The fact is, and I remember something that uh, Rondart said, oh, it must have been 30 years ago or more. And it was was profoundly accurate and true then, and it's even more so now because since then, we have an Internet and uh, all kinds of things that we didn't have then. And he said... That if Satan, the devil, can't get to you any other way. If you're on such a right course with Jesus Christ that he can't get to you any other way. At the very least, he's going to figure out some way to waste your time. And I thought, boy, boy, that's that's pretty accurate. Anybody here ever spin their wheels? Anybody here ever get involved in things that really wastes valuable time? If I was the devil, how would I what would I do? Let me see. Oh, I know, I would devise schemes and ways to divert them away from a walk with Christ. I would divert them away from Bible study. I would divert them away from prayer time. I would fill their lives with noise. I would fill their life with sights and sounds and gadgets and stuff to occupy them in such a way. I would, I would get them addicted to certain television programs that, that instead of going to the prayer closet, well, I've got to watch my program, I would get them addicted to texting. It's a wonder people's thumbs don't wear out. I would get them addicted to the, to the stuff that our conveniences provide for us, the gadgets, the noise of modern life. Could we be guilty of allowing that to happen? Are, are we guilty at times of doing those kinds of things? I think we are. I think we are indeed. And the devil is successful. Do you ever wonder why he doesn't quit? I mean, he knows what this book says. And yet he doesn't quit. He doesn't give up. Why? Because we won't let him. We keep encouraging him. Yes, we do, of course. Because we keep going along with him so many ways. Now, if you would turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians, that's not what I want. I wanted to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That 2 doesn't have a 1 in front of it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. See, we are, in many respects, we're without excuse. We've been given... Spirit of power and love and soundness of mind, not a spirit of fear. And the Apostle Paul talks about that, some of the things that God's Spirit does for us. If you've comprehended this sermon, if you comprehend what I've said unto you, said unto you about the fact that Christ is going to roll it up like a scroll, if you understand that that we are going to be born of God, if you understand what the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit is, if you understand this book. If you have any authentic understanding, then it's because this has happened. It's one of the functions of God's Holy Spirit. You know, down through the ages, the mysterion of God has not been understood, and it's still not understood in traditional Christianity. Not only is it not understood, it is, it is explained in, in ways that are so incorrect that it boggles one's mind. But... We've been given the ability to understand. Verse 7. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world, unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for them that love him. But God has revealed them unto us by his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ said it was the spirit of truth that leads us into all truth and characterized it as the Paracletos, which he would be. And he said, I must leave you that I might come back to you. My words, but that is His meaning, of course. And God has revealed them unto us by His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him, that gives us cognitive power, raises us above the animal level. Did you know that there are some animals who have superior brains to us? Brains that are larger, with more neurons firing, more synopsis activity, more nerve connections, some dolphins and elephants, for instance. And yet, we are almost infinitely above them, because we have a spirit, which turns that brain on in ways that they do not have. For what man knows the things of man, save the spirit of man which is in him. Even so, the things of God knows no man but the spirit of God. Yes, the precious Holy Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, not the punerious pneuma that is in the world, the evil spirit that's in the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teaches but with the Holy Spirit teaches comparing spiritual things with spiritual and now brethren if you would turn with me over to the book of Colossians and I will close and I didn't even get to half of the scriptures that I wanted to go to In light of all of this, in light of the fact that that we have cognizance, in light of the fact that we're very much aware that this God of this world is after us and that He is our archenemy and that we have autonomy in regards to our conversion as to how fast it will succeed or whether or not we can quench God's Holy Spirit or stir it up. In light of that, I submit to you that There couldn't be better advice to close with than this. In chapter 3 of the book of Colossians, let me read it, verse 12. In light of all that has been preached, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, the inner inner parts of us, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. It's a choice, and every day we're given choices. Every day we have the ability... To wire ourselves more and more like Christ. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against you. Against any. Even as Christ forgave you. So also do ye. And above all things. Put on charity. Put on agape love. Which is the bond of perfectness. It is love. That will be necessary in that meeting. Over and above all else. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the peace of God, the blessed peacefulness of God, (laughs) quiet. How blessed quiet can be. Do you ever take the time to be quiet and be alone with God? Do you ever take the time to just simply get away from the noise and turmoil of life in this world, to just think about God's word? think about your calling to meditate on these things let the peace of God rule in your hearts to the which also you are called in one body and be ye thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom yes keep it in the forefront of your mind I have autonomy over my own mind as do you I choose to think about Jesus Christ I, I choose to be aware of the fact that he died for me. I choose to be aware of the fact continually that something is expected of me. A certain behavior, a certain way of walking, talking, acting, thinking. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. That's a poetic King James way of saying, think about the right things and think about them the right way, entertain the right thoughts. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto him, to God and the Father by him. Brethren, have a wonderful Sabbath, have a great Memorial Day weekend, and have a blessed and happy Pentecost the feast of first fruits, which you are. God be with you.